Somebody told me there's a good phrase once, which was that you can't advertise yourself out of a situation you've behaved yourself into. Um, and I think it's a really good phrase that, you know, the, the answer to a crisis or the answer to criticism, whatever, is not to say throw you more money at advertising and go out there and tell people that you're wonderful. Welcome to another episode of Communicating Purpose. I'm John Higginson, and I believe that the best way to get a message across clearly is by talking about something you honestly and passionately believe in. By doing this, you bring people with you, your passion becomes theirs, and I call this the power of purpose. Hilary Cross is a communications professional with vast experience across purpose-driven organizations. Currently, she leads Rewilding Britain's brand and communications, looking to engage landowners and rewilding enthusiasts to protect our bio- biodiversity and wildlife. Recently, Hillary led re- Rewilding Britain's efforts to rebrand under its new rallying call, Think Big, Act Wild. Hillary is also a deputy chair of the Prisoners Education Trust, the UK's leading prison education charity, and has previously directed communications and strategy at the British Council, Macmillan Cancer Support and the NSPCC. Hillary, thanks very much for joining me. Good to be here. So tell us about your journey uh, to um, how you got to where you are today. Well, my very first job in communications was actually working at Friends of the Earth back in the early 90s. Um, And I'd always had an interest in environment and and green issues. And um, I had been a journalist before I went into um, charity communications. Uh, And I was writing, I was based in Australia for a little while and I was writing on environmental issues. So when I came to the UK, I decided that I wanted to work in charity communications. Having been a journalist, I I felt that it was kind of the other side of the story, but you could get your teeth into it in a bit more depth. So um, I joined Friends of the Earth and worked in their press team for a while. And then, I mean, I've done all the things they say you shouldn't do. I've worked with children, animals, um, and worked in health charities, environmental charities. Um, And yeah, my latest role is working with Rewilding Britain um, as they're leading their brand communications marketing area and I sit on their senior leadership team as well so uh, I am involved in the development of, of you know the organization's strategy and direction too. Great so what have been some of your biggest challenges um, at Rewilding Britain? I think one of the biggest challenges is that people don't really know what rewilding is properly yet um, I mean some do obviously but there's there's lots of people who don't um, and it's one of those phrases which is increasingly um, becoming bandied around all over the place and people talk about you know rewilding their wardrobe or rewilding their life and and there isn't um, I think in some of the organizations I've worked for it's been quite clear for example if you if you work in child in, when I was at the NSPCC or at Macmillan people understand what uh, child abuse or child protection is they understand what um, cancer is and I think one of the challenges with communications at Rewilding Britain is the need to have to explain the context, the complexity of rewilding and the process of rewilding alongside trying to explain, and this is what Rewilding Britain does, this is what we want to see, and this is our vision and, and our ambition as well. So it's not straightforward. Um, and in the midst of all the other conservation and environmental issues, trying to get that stand out, trying to get that clarity about exactly what contribution rewilding plays and what it is, um, I think is the, is the challenge. 
would would you like to have a go at explaining what what rewilding is for our listeners? Um, absolutely. I mean, rewilding is the is the landscape scale restoration of nature to the point where you can stand back and let it take care of itself and it's able to take care of itself. So it does have to be landscape scale. It is about ecosystem restoration um, and it's about letting nature take control. So that doesn't mean there's no intervention from people. I mean, people are at the very heart of it. And I think the lovely thing about rewilding is that when there are some massive, great existential threats that we face. You know, we face the climate emergency, the breakdown of um, the ecological breakdown. Uh, we have some big financial, you know, the tanking of the economy. Um, we have community breakdown. There's some really big issues that are around. And rewilding is actually a hopeful solution to those things. Um, it obviously can, um, can, can contribute to uh, issues, the, the big issues like climate change and the, and, the, um, and, and the ecological collapse. But I think the other thing is that it's very much about people and that message doesn't come across enough. It's about communities. It's about building communities and building economies. And we're, um, we're very impact and evidence-based to show that actually it does bring back jobs into rural areas. You can have a a functioning, successful green economy. So rewilding has lots of positives. It's a very hopeful story, but it is about kind of the, this large scale restoration of, of large areas of land, uh, not just kind of, you know, the window box, putting, putting some seeds in your window box. Or... So when you, say, when you say landscape scale, what does landscape scale mean? What is the size of that? I don't know. To allow ecosystems to redesign themselves, you need to let rivers run free. You need to let, you know, um, you need to let animals uh, change the landscape that might need to um, that, that will help um, capture carbon, that will help retain water so that there's uh, less flooding downstream, that will help retain water so that you don't that that also has a, a contribution towards um, protecting against wildfires, for example. But it's about the whole of the landscape, so you can't just you can't just do it in a very very small area. And expect there to be those kinds of um, issues like carbon capture happening or flood retention or some of the, the, the really big benefits happening if you're just doing it in a very small area. Um, there's obviously a need to have, um, if you really want to restore nature, you do need to have corridors between the areas that are being rewilded. So we say that we want to see 30% of Britain given over to nature restoration and primarily managed for nature and about 5% of that being core rewilding which is really where you let the animals take control, the, the, um, the water, the natural processes take control um, so that you get, um, so that you can really allow the, the, all of the benefits to take place properly. And that might include, for example, um, the, the reintroduction of species. And we certainly think some of those big ecosystem engineers like beavers that can have such a massive impact on the landscape do need a bit of space to be able to do that. Mm. So what are we at at the, at the moment if, you're, if you want 30%? Uh, it's a really interesting one. We're, we've actually commissioned some research into saying exactly where we feel that 30% could be, um, where it won't have a detriment on food production. It won't have a detriment on, on um, you know, what, what we need to do, the things that we need to do to keep ourselves, um, to keep the economy going. Um, you don't need to rewild the whole countryside. 30% of the land, if you look at the national parks, if you look at the the big grouse moors, if you look at the land that's owned by the army, by the water boards, by the crown, um, there's some big landowners who make up at least that. And we're, we're looking to say exactly where we think that 30% could be to ensure that um, 
we get the, the nature benefits, we get the benefits of rewilding, but it also will mean that we allowed, allow um, other areas to be given over to, you know, housing and uh, agricultural land where we can do food production. I think one of the myths that you often hear about rewilding is that it's not about people. And what we would say is that it very much is about people. It's about building rural economies. It's about building green economies. It's about providing jobs. And one of the pieces of research we did uh, was looking at all of those farms that had or areas of land which had rewilded over the last um, 10 to 20 years, who are, very, are part of the rewilding network, which is what the um, rewilding one of the things that Rewilding Britain has set up. We looked at all of the um, all of the land, and we looked at all of the, the um, people that had been working on that land over that period of time, and showed that there was a massive increase in jobs if you started rewilding compared to the land use before. And that could be that it was a large grouse moor that had a couple of people working on it. And then once you start rewilding it, you get opportunities for nature tourism, you get opportunities for, for some, some controlled food production. So for example, um, high level meat production, because you will need to be um, producing. Um, if, you, if you want to get some high level meat production, Sorry, if you want to control the land at the moment when we don't have natural predators, you will need to do some shooting of some of the animals that are there. So the deer um, or some, or you'll need to cull some of the, the cattle that are necessary um, to keep the, the, the land being uh, looked after by those animals. So they need to dig them up and you'll have, you'll have some pigs and some cattle and some, some deer that are looking at managing the undergrowth and managing the land. Um, and they will, um, they will, because there are no natural predators, we do need to keep those numbers down. So you look at one of the successful places like NEP, which is in um, Sussex, in West Sussex, which is a very large farm, which has been rewilded. And they now produce um, a kind of low level of numbers, but certainly um, very good quality meat. So there is some meat production that may very well take place. Right. There's all kinds of other, other jobs. There's ecologists, there's studying and, and nature, nature um scientists as well that who may very well be working there um, but there are more jobs if you have a rewilded area yeah. than there are um, in, in all the in the farms that we have um, brought into our rewilding network than there were before so it is very much about how can this help the rural economy how can this actually bring money into mm. into um, communities in the rural areas as well right and um, we we know that the UK is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world at the moment. How much of, of the UK do you think is currently, would you count as being wild? Well, if you're looking at what's actually being, um, is rewilded, it's actually very small, a small area. Um, actually being re rewilded, it's probably less than 1%. Um, there are some wonderful, wonderful projects and our rewilding network has upwards of 600 to 800 different projects, some of them really large land-scale um, large scale estates, some of them are um, community-owned land, some of them may be owned by organisations such as the RSPB or the National Trust, but there's a whole range of different um, projects that are happening all over the country, increasing numbers of projects who are joining our rewilding network, coming together so that we can, um, they can learn from each other, they can share experience, they can, we have an online community that they can join. We do regular webinars. We do visits. We get them together in various gatherings. So people are learning from each other. Um, Percentage-wise, I, I, 
and if you actually look at the government is saying that they think that they can reach the 30 by 30 pledge that they've made, which is the 30 percent of the land given to nature by 2030, which is a kind of global pledge that leaders are making and our, and our government have supported. Um, they think they can make that by adding up, for example, the land within our national parks and then some of the kind of wildlife areas or the wilder areas that we have. Um, actually, our national parks are some of the most depleted areas for nature. Um, you say that Britain is one of the most depleted countries for nature in the world, and it's true. If you look to some of our national parks, they have less tree cover than some of our cities do. Um, they are largely privately owned. Uh, the land, most of the land isn't isn't always publicly accessible. So they're not like the national parks of America, which are literally given over to, to wilderness and are owned by the government. Um, the national parks in the UK are not. They're owned by a whole range of different, a mosaic of different landowners. Uh, and we're saying that you can't just count them because they're called national parks when the actual level of, of nature within those national parks is actually quite low. I went to um, the Brecon Beacons quite recently and I was wanted to go and do some bird watching, and I was quite surprised to see. I mean, there are some areas that are improving, and there are some lovely, lovely parts of the Brecon Beacons, but there's lots of areas where there's very, very few birds. Uh, you're mainly just seeing, you know, crows and rooks, um, magpies, the occasional um, uh, kite or something. But th there really isn't what I'd see in my back garden in London. Um, there isn't the same kind of diversity, and that's largely because they're they're monocultures. You know, they're largely being um, brought the way right down to, to, to being grass, um, lots of rabbits, lots of sheep, um, and not a great deal of undergrowth. And that yeah. means that they, you just don't get the nature um, and that you can't really count them towards that 30% of land giving over to nature yet. Uh, so one of our campaigns is a, is a campaign for wilder national parks. We've been working with a lot of the um, national park authorities. And uh, there's an ambition for a lot of them to really do this. They really want to have a lot more nature. Um, and there are some examples like the Cairngorms National Park in Scotland uh, is wonderful. They're doing a lot of rewilding there, massive restoration of nature. They're letting rivers, um, instead of kind of running in a straight line, letting them run free. If trees fall over, they let that di divert the water. They're bringing back beavers and other animals that are ecosystem engineers. Um, and they're absolutely beautiful to see because the, the wildlife, the bird life, the insect life, the, the quality of the air, the soil, the water are all so much more massively improved. Um, and there's a, an enormous feel good factor for humans, for our own health and well-being and being in nature and being in rich nature is such a wonderful feeling for everybody. Um, it's good for mental health. It's good for your physical health. Um, what's not to like? Mm. Now, I know that you're, you're, you're talking about some of those large-scale projects uh, for what you're talking about at what Rewilding Britain, um, but you just mentioned there the amount of biodiversity that you can get in your own garden in London. Uh, I'm also in London, and, and uh, I know that ordinary people can actually do a lot just with a, if they've got a garden in terms of if they uh, put a pond in, there's huge amounts of wildlife that you can attract, and... and uh, what do you think about some of those projects? There's kind of I'm thinking no mo may that's that, that, that's encouraged people to just give over part of their own garden to wildlife, and and uh, I'm seeing quite a lot lots of um, wildlife coming back into London gardens. We've got an owl in an uh, owl that's that, that 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 people are hearing in their garden. We're just in kind of zone two of London. It's really nice to hear. 
Yeah, that's that, that's lovely. It's I mean, and it is the same. It's the same here where where I live in North London. It's um, yeah, it can make a bit an enormous amount of difference. And there are lots of schemes. In fact, there's a a big scheme with the mayor that our um, one of our directors is involved in, which is about a rewilding London uh, project. And there's um, aims to bring back beavers into, um, I'm not sure exactly where it is, but in Enfield. So um, there are lots of big. There are some big projects. As far as um, your own back garden is concerned. Uh, you may or may not know that uh, Rewilding Britain was involved in the Chelsea Garden show last year. Uh, we were approached by Project Giving Back, who were sponsoring a garden, which was uh, run by uh, Urquhart and Hunt, who are uh, garden designers, who very much wanted to bring a, na a natural garden into Chelsea. Um, well, their Rewilding Britain landscape won Best in Show at Chelsea last summer. Now, you can't actually just build a small garden in a you know the shape of in Chelsea that is a re is actually a rewilding re project. But what you can do is showcase what is possible if people actually have a view that actually we want natural plants, we want natural processes, we want animals, birds, and insects, and uh, to be just as much part of the garden as we do the flowers, and we want uh, native species. Um, their garden was absolutely beautiful. For rewilding Britain, it was um, it was an opportunity to show that we can have wilder gardens and that wilderness can be incredibly beautiful and incredibly beneficial. I mean, I was in the garden one day and there was some blackbirds came and landed in you know, right in the middle of the garden and started washing themselves in the pond. It was um, a beaver inspired landscape. So obviously we didn't have any beavers at Chelsea, however nice that might have been. Um, but it was a beaver-inspired landscape with a dam um, showing ha how the the beavers will dam the land so that the water will then flood out into a, into a riparian, you know, a, a meadow, which is just effectively a, a damp meadow. Um, and that the impact that that can have on, on uh, the type of wildlife and the type of plants and things that can grow there. Um, it was incredibly beautiful, really inspiring. Um, and I think it was, I mean, in, um, in lots of ways, it, 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 it triggered off lots of discussions about, well, what is a garden and, you know, what, what is rewilding and, and, you know, is this, there was lots of discussions uh, uh, in, in the kind of gardening press around, is this actually, you know, should this be allowed? Is this just too wild? What happened to the gardens of old where we all had roses and rows of begonias and all kinds of other things? Um, it, but it, it it was it was so well visited, and the responses were so good when people were coming around and asking questions about it. You know, what are those twigs doing there? And you're like, well, those are actually gnawed by beavers. You know, actually used twigs that had been gnawed by beavers from a beaver dam, and they'd visited the, the gardeners had visited um, some real beaver areas where beaver had been beavers had been rehabilitated in the UK. Um, reintroduced in the UK. So um, they, everything was authentic, was very authentic. Um, but it got picked up all over the place. I mean, communications wise, it was an enormous success because we were on, we went on to, we had a Telegraph um, cartoon. There was a, have I got news for you question. There was, you know, a, the, the top question, the top um, letter in the Radio Times was all about how wonderful it was. Um, so it kind of reached a new audience. And so I think there's something about, yes, of course, but, you know, you can't do a big landscape scale unless you have an enormous estate. You can't do a landscape scale stuff in your back garden, but you can do masses to bring back wildlife, different types of plants and leaving things to go to seed that will bring the birds in, uh, you know, not and going for native species uh, and particularly having a pond, which is a really good way of bringing, bringing um 
and, you know, a whole load of amphibians, insects in, which again will bring in birds and will bring in other animals. Um, so I think there's an awful lot that people can do and an awful lot that people can take pleasure from in doing it as well. So, Tell us a bit, bit about your um, rebrand then. What was the thinking behind it? What did you do um, for those people that, you know, lots of comms people, we all know that we spend absolutely ages on the, on the rebrand and what it should mean and everything else. And tell us about your one. Yeah, I'll, I can talk, I'll talk to you, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the Rewilding Britain rebrand, but the other rebrand that I worked on, I didn't lead, um, but I did lead the um, building the brand afterwards, was Macmillan's rebrand, uh, which took place in 2006, which was one of the first big rebrands in the charity sector. Um, but at, at Rewilding Britain is a very, very small organisation. Um, it's There's only about 20 staff and none of us are full-time, well, only a few people are full-time. Um, and we've grown rapidly because of the increase in, of interest in rewilding. So, you know, a couple of years ago, we, there was about six or seven of us. Um, the, the reason for the rebrand was to try and get stand. I mean, really, it's about trying to get standout and differentiation in a very, in a growing environmental and conservation world. Uh, there's lots of big players there. There's the world, you know, WWFs and, and the National Trust and RSPB and others who are big organizations, fabulous organizations, um, but organizations with big staff, um, you know, big estab established uh, reputations. And Rewilding Britain is a bit of a kind of startup um, that has only been around for less than 10 years and which um, wanted to make its mark, but wanted to be really clear that everyone was calling for this 30% of Britain to be given over to nature. We wanted to be really clear about the 5% that needed to be rewilded, the 5% that really needed to be extremely, you know, really left for nature to take control. And um, the standout, we, we, did a, we did a little bit of market analysis of where we sat because people said, they'd, oh yeah, I think I've heard of rewilding Britain, but then they didn't really know what rewilding was and they didn't really know what we did. Um, and we had a, we just had a really close look at the brand and how we were talking about ourselves, and decided that we just needed to be bolder. You know, we're asking for something bold to happen. We're asking for this core rewilding to be taking place and much more nature restoration to be happening. Uh, and so we wanted to go out there and, and show that and illustrate that visually and in our tone of voice and in what we did. Um, so there was a bit of a strategy rethink at the time as well about clarity about who we were as an organization. I don't think you can do a rebrand and just do it as a kind of, you know, it's not a, it's not just a visual thing. It's not just a skim of who you are. It's very much about what you believe in and your, and your values and, um, and, your, and how you represent your strategy. And so as an organization, we decided that we would refer, we, we would talk about the two things we did. One was we influence and the other one was catalyze. And um, so we influence policy and practice, and then we catalyze people to come together to make rewilding happen. Um, and, uh, to, and, and we decided that to do that, you do need to think big and you do need to act wild and that therefore we needed to have a bold uh, tone of voice and we needed to have a bold visual identity that came behind that. So it was a, we wanted to stand out from the kind of lots and lots of green that there was. I mean, we still have green in our, in our, in our color palette. Um, but there was, uh, we were looking a little bit flowery and a little bit standard conservation-ish, um, just a little bit too, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't stand out from all the other organizations. Um, and it's really nice to see actually that the Wildlife Trust have just rebranded as well. And they've done some really nice things as well, um, to try and, 
express a bit more clearly about who they are and what they think. So I, I think, um, and lots of charities do do it. And I think it really is important in a crowded marketplace um, because you do want people to invite you to be at the table. Tell us about Macmillan then, because that sounds interesting as well. So um, yeah, tell us briefly about that rebrand. Yeah, Macmillan was at the stage before we rebranded, and in, in um, that a lot of it was Macmillan Cancer Relief before we rebranded, and people thought about it very much as being relief at end of life. Uh, Macmillan is there to provide a nurse that will help me at the time when I'm at my in my last days or my last weeks. Um, it was very much associated with just nurses and hospitals. And actually, people's experience of cancer was changing a great deal. People's experience of cancer was no longer taking place just in a hospital. People were surviving cancer, living much longer. Um, Some of the issues they were facing might have been to do with uh, finances, might have been to do with um, emotional issues, relationship issues. So there was a lot to do with, yes, the, the physical aspects of having cancer, but it was no longer a kind of terminal thing that happened in a hospital privately behind closed doors with, with the nurses around. It was much more something that was happening in families, in workplaces, in communities. And Macmillan was still had this, this, this image that didn't go with the reality of a cancer experience. So the reason that was the reason Macmillan decided to rebrand. Um, we felt we needed to be much more in people's lives. We needed to, to be much broader as in our offer. Um, and we needed to kind of bring people in to come and talk to us about the whole range of other experiences they were having, as well as providing the, the fantastic Macmillan nurses that were there. Um, so it was, a, it was a big change for the organisation. Um, the tone of voice that we'd had before had been, had been very soft, supported, supportive um, and um, professional. But it hadn't been, again, demanding of governments. It hadn't been getting people involved in tough mudders and getting people involved in fundraising. And it, so, so the, the tone of voice needed to become much, much braver. Um, and it had to be a bit more of a force for change, not just a source of support, which were the two ways in which it was describing itself. Um, so the rebrand uh, took place in, say, 2006. Um, so we rebranded, we went through the, the kind of... A, a large exercise with a rebrand agency, with a branding agency, uh, Wolf Ollins, who are excellent, um, to come up with the Macmillan Cancer Support and the whole um, We Are Macmillan um, messaging that came with it. Um, and it had a big cut through with our supporters for the first year. And then within the second year, which by which time I had then taken over um, director of the of marketing and communications, um, we decided we'd start doing some more advertising, some actually getting out there and doing some big, big advertising. Some of the, we hadn't done that much before then. Some of the other big charities had, there had been some very, you know, big television stuff that other people had done. Um, but we started doing a, a, some more campaigning um, and we launched a, a, a couple of campaigns. There was a Good Day campaign. The one I'm most proud of was the Not Alone campaign, which was about no one should face cancer alone. Um, and it was it, it really changed people's understanding of who Macmillan was and the offer. Um, I think people had been frightened before being told, actually, you could get some help from Macmillan. And they thought, oh, my God, that means this is definitely terminal. Now, sometimes the people are told you could get some help from Macmillan. They think, oh, great. I know they do some really good stuff with financial support and helping me with my benefits or, you know, with my with my bills. Um, so I think it changed the impression that the public had of Macmillan. And it, and it was bold and brave and it went out with a completely new typeface and design and everything else and 
um, for the first couple of years had to be brand police to keep everyone on track, um, but then, you know, made it easy for people to be able to use. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a real success. I think, and I think the kind of the, the proudest moment really came when um, we won Marketing Society Brand of the Year, and that was we were up against EasyJet and John Lewis. You know, it wasn't just a charity award, it was a brand award. Um, and I think that Marketing Society Brand of the Year, which is about 2015, I think, something like that. Um, I remember at the time saying, yes, thank you very much for, to our advertising agency. Thank you very much to our branding agency. Thank you very much to our communication team. But actually, thank you very much to our nurses, because it was the experience that people had through the Macmillan services um, that made Macmillan the brand that it was and still is. Uh, regardless of, um, you know, that all of those things can help promote what's going on. All the work you do in communications and marketing helps promote that. But you have to have a fantastic offer as a charity of really good purpose. You have to have a really good, um, to make people, you know, th the offer that Macmillan has, it's much beyond the nurses. There's all sorts of other things it does. Is, is wonderful and and that's what I think made people love us it wasn't just the fact we did some some bloody good advertising it has to be honest doesn't it and 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 the thing is as you say you can do a rebrand and you can you can do communications but if someone looks at that communications and then they look at the product and it's not there then 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 it just doesn't stand up at all um, so it's, uh, it's absolutely right. Somebody told me there was a good phrase once, which was that you can't advertise yourself out of a situation you've behaved yourself into. Um, and I think it's a really good phrase that, you know, the, the answer to a crisis or the answer to criticism, whatever, is not to say throw you more money at advertising and go out there and tell people that you're wonderful. And actually you're really, um, yeah, there've been times when I think government should be advised to do that. Don't stop trying to communicate your way out of you know it's your behavior that matters not necessarily how you um how you do your marketing absolutely yeah 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 and and actually in a funny way you know even as a comms professional I very much believe in that you know do what people look at what people do rather than what they say you know so so you know you can you can say stuff but the only thing you can really say is pointing out what people do well you know you can highlight what people do well um, and you can maybe look at if someone has done something wrong, you can have a mere culpa and you can say, okay, we actually did this wrong, and um, but but we're trying to improve, we're only human. Tell us about, um, you, you've, you've given us a really good example there of something that you're very proud of, and, and, uh, and I also absolutely agree that it's always great when you can um, show that you're good outside of your immediate box in your kind of charity box and actually say, look, we're, we're com competing on the stage of every organization out there. Um, tell us about one of your hardest days in the office. We've all had hard ones as comms professionals. Yes. Um, I, I think my hardest days in the office are nearly always to do with people. Um, there are times, especially when I was working for really big organizations, I mean, say, rewilding Britain, I've told you how small it is. Bill and I had a team of, I think it was just over 100, uh, a British council, about 500, because it was a global team. Um, I think sometimes you have, particularly in difficult financial times, to make decisions that you don't particularly want to have to make, but you know financially you have to make them. So I think some of my, my most difficult times have been, I've had to make members of my team who I respect and enjoyed working with redundant. 
And I always think those are my hardest days in the office when you have to do anything with a, with with people that you do really like. Um, and sometimes when you're at the senior level, and and that's what has to happen. Um, and then you know, yeah. other hard days are always when somebody else has had a bad day. You know, there's been in the time that I've been managing people, people who've had big personal crises that I've had to deal with. And I think those are the hardest days in the office. I think one of the, on a kind of professional issue, an issue level, um, one of the hardest things to deal with, um, which was also, I guess, one of the biggest kind of crises, possibly as a professional or as a senior leader I've had to deal with, uh, was Brexit. And that was because I was working at the British Council at the time. And the British Council is an organisation that promotes knowledge and friendly understanding between the UK and people of the world and works very closely with every organisation from the United Nations to the EU that it possibly could. And um, we we were very much involved in... We uh, the, the British Council, when I was working there, um, delivered the Erasmus programme. It worked on the Horizon uh, Research Programme. It was involved in and delivered in the UK a whole range of EU-funded projects. It had vast quantities of British staff who were working in European countries. Um, and it had people who believed in internationalism as a solution to um, a lot of the issues that internationally we were facing. It believed in working with others. It believed in, in, build, in knocking down walls and building bridges and all those things. Uh, using culture and, and English language to do that. So um, we had actually come out beforehand and said that we thought Brexit wouldn't be a good idea, even though we were partly government funded, but actually at the time the government was support, were in support of staying within the European Union anyway. Um, but it actually, on a, pers- on, on a crisis level, we did, have, we did have a crisis meeting at sort of, you know, I can't remember what time it was, 7am in the, in the office as soon as we realised overnight what was happening. Because... A lot of our staff could they stay on living in living in in um, Europe? Could they carry on working? Could you know what was happening with all of our staff? But also half of our programs, which were EU funded, and things like Erasmus program, which you know loads and loads of students have been through in university mm-hmm. to have a year working abroad, were all going to be ended. Have all ended, and so that was a real organisational crisis, and it was a British crisis. Um, and having to, you know, being on the senior leadership team that had to have that crisis meeting that morning and think, what does this mean for our staff? What does this mean for our work? Um, was terrifying. It was, you know, and, and just so sad. It was a really difficult, sad day. A lot of it started out, obviously, thinking about internal communications because that was a big part of my role there because of the being a worldwide organisation. What are we going to say to the staff today? Um, how do we reassure? And then, you know, everyone having to go off and do their bits about what are we going to do about people's contracts? What's going to happen to? Um, so yeah, that was I think was was on a on a big level was one of, was an incredibly sad day, really really sad day because of understanding some of the actual concrete implications of what had just happened and what that was going to mean in the future. I did leave the British Council before Brexit actually happened because I left there in two two thousand and eighteen or something. So it was a year or two after the decision, but before we'd actually left. Um, but I know that there's been, you know, real massive repercussions for that organisation. Just really, really sad. Tell us about, um, and I ask this of all my guests on here, what's the media that you read yourself and listen to and watch? 
Uh, I'm a bit of a podcast listener. Um, so I'm glad this is a podcast. Um, but I do, I'm a bit, I, I very much love news. I really enjoy news. So all of the rest is politics and the news agents and, you know, all those things. Sometimes I find more accessible nowadays than I do listening to the Today programme, which I tend to shout at. Um, but I also love radio. I love radio. I love Radio 5 Live because I'm actually a season ticket holder at Tottenham and um, I go to, I'm very interested in football for my sins at the moment. Um, so um, I, I listen to the Spurs podcast, Last Word on Spurs and Spurs podcast and there's various other ones that I can listen to there. Um, but I just love podcasts because I like walking um, and uh, I go out for a walk every morning. I leave my house and go and walk around the park and come back in again and start work. So I walk to work every morning and that's always a 20 minute something. Um, so yeah, podcasts. I love podcasts. Um, I do, I do tend to still buy a newspaper at the weekends. I still quite like having a, a news, you know, just like a Sunday paper. Which one do you go for? Or, or, or do you go on the headline? No, I, I usually go to the Observer. My parents always read the Observer. Um, I, and I, but I do get lots of other stuff on online. So I'm a big Twitter user. Um, I, in fact, I do I tweet less now, uh, but I, I get a lot of news from that. Um, I also have a subscription to the New York Times online because I quite like a bit of international stuff. And when I go and watch television news, I do like having a flick around and seeing what what do Al Jazeera say about that one compared to what do the BBC say? I just think it's quite interesting seeing all those different um, those different uh, viewpoints on things and different ways in which things are reported. Having having travelled quite a lot with the British Council and, and will travel quite a lot anyway and, and lived abroad a little bit, um, I just think it's quite interesting to get another take on world news rather than just the kind of standard one. Now, having said that, the, the New York Times probably gives me just an American view on the, on the world. Um, but I do like getting a different view on news. So, yeah, most of it is is that kind of thing. And then, yeah, following what Spurs are up to. <laughs> Hilary Cross, Head of Brand and Communications at Rewilding Britain. Thank you for joining me, John Higginson, on Communicating Purpose. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.